Hello, and welcome to Pop Culture Hangfire with Christian and Gabriel. The podcast where I try to go year by year, reintroducing Gabriel to everything he might have missed in pop culture that I think was relevant while he was homeschooled and sheltered from the outside world. The year, 1997. The episode, three. Beatle Paul McCartney was knighted by Queen Elizabeth II. Tony Blair was elected Prime Minister of the UK and becomes the UK's youngest Prime Minister of the 20th century. The Barbie doll had a larger waistline, smaller breast, and more modest clothing. And the price of a gallon of gas in the United States was $1.22. I don't believe it. Uh, yeah. Uh, 1997, <laughs> I definitely was still on public transportation. Uh, rocking the bus from Mid-City all the way to Santa Monica Pier and Venice Boulevard and Venice Beach. Uh, the bus pass was my, was my ticket to the world around me. Uh, how was your 1997? Just a quick recap. Yeah, good. Uh, living in Rancho Cucamonga. Got a lot of room outside to play. A little bit like we're getting, uh, as time goes on here, increasing access to computers. Um, internet at best would have been dial-up, but uh, I'm, I'm sure my grandfather was always on the cutting edge. I remember he went through a phase when uh, tape drives, he had tape drives for a bit because that was the height, that was the peak of technology after, you know, before like dvd and cd stuff but after floppy disk there was like tape drives was more efficient so for a while there he had tape drives which did not last very long great question how much do you know of your grandfather and should we dedicate an episode to him i feel like he seems like every time you mention something about him i'm like what an interesting man like for his time he's a very interesting man i mean i wish i had a, a better memory for because especially as i got older i always encouraged stories um, there was there was a number of very interesting stories of his. Um, he actually wrote a, uh, a couple of books like about his life and about things he was interested in. Maybe that's what we need to do. Then. See read if his, I can pull those out. Yeah, like read his books Dog and then just give us the... some. Yeah, give us some excerpts. He yeah, seems yeah, yeah. He, like from what you say, like so two things, right? Usually there's a um, there's a stigma, right, of being older about technology, about like you know hanging on to the past and the best generation and stuff like that. There aren't a lot of older people who are very in tune with what's going on or keeping up to date. Now, I think that, you know, like celebrities, right? You look at these people in their 60s and 70s that are, they seem to have their, you know, like Jack Nicholson's, well, not Bill Murray's, right? They seem to have their finger on the pulse, right? They understand, but they're exposed to it. So it's very cool when you see a person who is of a mature age, but also keeping up with what's going on. Like, it's kind of like what I strive to be, right? When I'm 60, I want to be able to talk about current music and old music and current stuff and old stuff. Cause there's a, there's that very sharp line between an older person who has really great historical knowledge of their youth. Like I had right. a buddy, I had a buddy named Victor back when I was in mid city, he was like a, a Chicano and he was one of the first Latinos that ever attended LACC, you know, like community college back in the day. So he had a lot of history up until the, you know, like 90s. And then he just kind of plateaued. 
and he didn't go forward. He he definitely stayed in the in in you know in the in the rear and uh, and then just kind of lived day by day. But he w- he didn't progress after that. But he was right. great for those conversations to kind of give you that historical view. But to be able to have that and then connect it to current stuff, I think is is like key. And I think it seems like your grandfather might have had his finger on the pulse on that one. He he did, and I think a lot of it came from his own interests. And he grew up um, poor in in Louisiana, but he escaped that through education and through his service in the military. And uh, he was a, a very educated and intelligent man who then went on to work for Lockheed Martin. Oh. So, yeah. Yeah, I think he um, might he might he might deserve an episode. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to see if I can because I would absolutely want to be sure to do it justice. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that that's for a future time. Let's not let's yeah. not uh, let's not spoil anything now because already when you like those, those that that <laughs> thirty second, I was like, oh shit, <laughs> tease. Yeah, I, I was like, I kind of want to hear more about this man. Um, all right, so let's go into movies. I, again, like we talked about the quality of movies that came out in '97, and and you know every every time I'm like, okay, I want to keep it three, four movies, and then I end up with five or six, and I'm like, we're, we might end up with a cutting room floor episode because there's a few that have honorable mentions aside from the ones I'm bringing up. The first one I want to bring up from 1997. Tell me if you've seen Gross Point Blank. Mm-mm. Okay. This is a, a stars John Cusack, Minnie Driver, Alan Arkin, Dan Aykroyd, and I remember uh, Jeremy Piven also is in this movie. And it follows the story of an assassin played by John Cusack, who returns to his um, hometown of Gross Point, or yeah, I think it was Gross Point, uh, to attend his high school reunion. And basically, like he, after high school, he disappeared for ten years joined the military became like part of like recon and then after he got out he became a mercenary and an assassin for hire so that's the it, it's it's very much a, a black comedy right so he goes back home to his uh, high school reunion where he also ends up having a hit but he then has to reconnect with a bunch of his high school friends that he hasn't talked to and his high school sweetheart that he hasn't talked to that he just disappeared on everybody for 10 years it was fantastic. It's such a great movie. The film score is actually composed by Joe Strummer. Joe Strummer, you know, from The Clash. But no, I've, I've, I've seen that movie probably, you know, over half a dozen times in, in the last 15 years. It's such a good, good movie. It's one of those um, classic John Cusack movies, you know? Interesting. Yeah. Uh, it was, And again, indie film, right? 15 million budget and made 31 million. But I think it's become a cult classic over the over the last 20 years. Yeah. Really fun movie, though. Really fun movie. Next up, we have... Now, I'm going to play something, and it's because it's become so iconic since this movie came out that, like, you can't hear this and not think of this. Like, it's just... It just doesn't make any sense that this movie... Like, what this movie did for um, for pop culture. So, you hear this, and you know exactly what this is, right? Yeah, baby, Yeah! Does that even help at all? That's that was Austin Powers, yeah. Okay, yeah, baby, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was no terrible. music, just just the quip. Just the quip. <laughs> um, but that's so, all you need. You were right. The buildup was correct. 
Yeah, so yeah, it came out in '97. The first one, right? America uh, was it uh, Austin Powers, uh, Man of, International Man of Mystery, uh, American spy comedy directed by Jay Roach, one of the three Austin Powers movies from the series that was co-produced and co and written by Mike Myers. These were his his characters to play, right? He played the lead and he played Doctor Evil. Uh, you had Elizabeth Hurley in it, Robert Wagner, Seth Green. And Michael York, and obviously it's a parody of the James Bond films, right? From the nineteen popular culture from the nineteen sixties, about this promiscuous secret agent. <laughs> That's a good word for it. Um, so, did you watch these eventually? I eventually saw. I know I saw. I think it was. Uh, I saw one of them. I don't think I've seen them all. I de- well, I definitely haven't seen them all in their entirety, at least. Yeah, no, I remember this came out, dude, and it just blew up. Oh, yeah, it was quotable everywhere. Everyone was talking about it. Everywhere. I mean, I I think I've watched this movie like a dozen times probably in the last 20 years. It's uh, And it was very fresh and original, you know, at the time. It it really was something different. And I think think the sequel, The Spy Who Shagged Me, was was right up there. And then, like, Goldmember, you kind of started to lose, you know, because... You know, and maybe we should do an episode on sequels one day where we talk about what happens in franchises when, you know, when you when you don't re-energize it somehow, you know, when you just you're are just telling. Yeah, when you're just coasting. And sometimes that works, right? Look at the Fast and the Furious. And and sometimes you're Why like... Why that works is kind of a mystery. <sighs> that is interesting. I'm done. We, we should, again, let me write it down. A sequels episode where we talk about... Movie sequels. 18 million budget made uh, 67 million and just kept going from there. Okay, here's an interesting one that I wanted to talk about, which I'm 90% sure you haven't seen. Actually, I'm going to say 99% sure you haven't seen, but I, I saw it and I've seen it a few times since. And it's one of those movies that was so good, it stuck in my brain. And again, it, it had a lot to do with what was happening in current events at the time, right? So it's a movie called Wag the Dog. Have you heard of it? I've heard. I, I've it sounds familiar. Definitely haven't seen it. Okay, so this is a movie starring Dustin Hoffman and Robert De Niro. It was an interesting premise because basically it was about, you know, like in Pulp Fiction, the wolf, the guy who makes things, you know, cleans things up. So it was the story of that guy and a Hollywood producer who fabricate an Albanian war to distract v- voters from a presidential sex scandal. And it came out right around the Lewinsky incident with Bill Clinton. So everybody thought that they were like, you know, that they had, that they had, but it just, it was just timing. Um, But it was such a great movie because like everybody gets hired and they do a full on Hollywood production of a fake war that they feed to the media, that then the media feeds to the public to distract people from the, um, the sex scandal that the president's going to. And it was at the same time, like, again, like the same time that that, um, that the Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton uh, scandal was coming out. Surely no scandal like that would ever plague the White House again. So it was fine. Yeah, you know. Um, but no, it was I remember it being a really, really great movie. But it was, um, again, a uh, indie film, like $15 million budget, really well received by the critics, gross $64 million. Dustin Hoffman actually received the nomination for uh, Best Actor for his performance. And the screenwriters got a nomination for uh, Best Adapted Screenplay. Now, Best Actor 
did not uh, go, obviously, is Dustin Hoffman. It didn't go to Titanic either. <laughs> not one of the movies that Titanic beat out. It actually went to Jack Nicholson for as good as it gets. But the best adapted screenplay uh, lost to L.A. Confidential, which, you know, again, we've talked about how many great movies would have been would have been historic in 97 had it yeah. not been for Titanic. Many a director wishing that they'd been forward or backward a year. But yeah, that one it was such a fun movie and such an interesting topic. And, and so think about this, right? 1997, you, you, you could think, nah, that's far-fetched, you know? The moon landing stuff wasn't even, like, the fake moon landing stuff wasn't even that big. Those conspiracy theaters were pretty small back in 97. With the internet now, with deep fakes, with all the stuff we have, if somebody did this now, you'd be like, oh, yeah, no, that's totally doable, right? I mean, it is a living conspiracy. This could be used as a documentary for a conspiracy theory now. Just a how-to guide. Uh, but no, uh, very, very much recommend this film. It's It's so much fun to watch. Now, we are going to talk about... Something we can't get away from. Another Nicolas Cage movie in 1997 comes out. And this is a really, really good Nicolas Cage movie. Now, having said that, if you had three guesses, really good Nicolas Cage movie, what would you think? Uh, so first one for me that comes to mind is Face Off. Okay. So that's like my... I, I don't know about the timing for 97... I can't think of anything that would be in that in that time in that time bracket. All right. Well, you got it. It is face off. <laughs> is it okay? Because yeah, that's is. the one I think that was from that era. I was like the other stuff that he gets he gets cited for a lot. I think is newer. I think the only one I can think of from that era is like Leaving Las Vegas, where he got that Oscar. Okay, yeah, I can think that of that. That was a good one. Um, and maybe but we already did Con Air, which is the other big, big yeah. One, I feel like in that in, the, in that vicinity. And I, and I think maybe National Treasure was a couple years later, right? It was later. It had yeah. to be. Okay. It so, yes. In the 2000s. Face Off, 1997, directed by John Woo, starring John Travolta and uh, our America's National Treasure, Nicolas Cage. Now, he did so much heavy lifting in that movie. So much heavy lifting because he had to act like himself and John Travolta. He did. <laughs> I mean, um, now, John Woo is, he is a Korean director who was. Highly, highly praised in the in the um, Korean uh, cinema because he basically created these um, this stylized like almost Western cinema, but in in Korea, like he he did like the um, the slow motion and uh, he did like you know Doves, me yeah Mexican always. standoffs and stuff like that. This is how cool his his uh, his style was that they called it. Um, they called it a uh, gung fu because yeah. of how well he was able to like interwine like the gunplay with the martial arts and fighting sequences. So he had created a style for himself, and he was very well known in uh, in Korea in Korean cinema for the work that he did. Before this, I think he had done one or two movies before this one, but this is the one that like put him on the map. Um, he so created his own, he his did. own genre, basically. Yeah, yeah he did. Uh, but this was the first Hollywood film in which he was given uh, a lot of creative control. And it shows. It is a, it is beautifully shot. And, and, and again, like, you have two actors that are, are, are just, just on the right frequency for it. Um, they are. But yeah, uh, you know, earned critical acclaim for the performances for Cajun Travolta. Uh, again, the stylized sequences. The film earned, I believe, two hundred and forty-five million worldwide, making it 
the 11th highest grossing film of 97. Not too bad. It was nominated for an award, okay? (laughs) (laughs) I almost feel bad, but it was nominated for sound effects. Sound effects editing. Um, Okay. I'll give you one guess who beat that movie for sound effects editing. Titanic. Titanic. (laughs) (laughs) What are they? Were they ocean sounds were on point? Uh, Bubbles in the water? Uh, apparently, on, I mean the breaking, you know, the metal and the, the iceberg. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but it was an expensive movie. And playing, yes. <laughs> it was a it was an eighty million dollar budget, but it got its money back times you know oh, yeah. times three. Uh, so what do you remember about uh, Face Off there? So it was one that uh, I one of my earliest introductions into that style of movie, mm-hmm. and um, I probably watched some. Chow Yun Fat stuff like Hard World Cop or something, and seeing something like that. Yeah, that was but, John Woo. Yep. Um, so I might have seen some of that, but like this one, just the over the top plot, right? Like the, this is the thing we can do somehow. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And the amount of like at the time, I didn't realize how weird either of the two main actors were as like individuals. <laughs> But in retrospect, it's all that much more amazing that they were able to kind of just flip the roles and and and, and sort of take on the mannerisms of the other role. It, they just did so well. They both did really. But like, for Nicolas Cage to be go from being a psychopath to have to be a sympathetic character, and selling it so well. Yeah, it's top top notch acting. It is. It is interesting because you're absolutely right. They're both very different actors, and and they do pick up each other's mannerisms. And again. You know, the directing, right? Being told and maybe... And John Woo seems like the type of director that, that has a lot of creative control and actually doesn't mind exerting it based on the fact that that movie looks exactly like one of his movies as opposed to a John Travolta movie, you know? There's also the, the you know, uh, the payoff for all of the the not questioning the setup and how it goes is the, the, the play of the loyalties throughout the whole thing and how people do things for loyalty, but there's, you know, the switch, so... So interesting. And now that you mention it, um, you know, when you think about 97, right? So 94 is when Pulp Fiction came out and and re-energized, you know, John Travolta's career, right? He hadn't done a lot between 90, after, before 94, before Pulp Fiction. And then he got, you know, he got Michael and he got Phenomenon and then like Broken Arrow and then Face Off. So he was back on top, you know? And then you have Nick, Nick Cage, who was doing okay. Like he had done, he had done Con Air, he had done The Rock, he had done Leaving Las Vegas already. So he was doing, he was coasting at the top, like uh, you know, as far as success and and uh, and what he was doing. So two actors that I think may, were maybe just at the right point in their careers where they were still listening and they weren't making demands and they they were open to like. The feedback, the yeah. the feedback and the project itself of, of you know how ludicrous it was, but how do we make it? How do we make it believable? And it's because you guys have to believe in it too, type of thing, you know? Yeah, no, it 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 worked. It worked. Whatever they did, it worked. It did. It's a really great film. It's a really great film. Now, again, I always say this: nobody strives to make a bad film. Sometimes bad films just happen. <laughs> 1997 also brought us Batman and Robin. Now, I'm not going to give you a lot of details about this because we already know how I feel about the Joel Schumacher, Batman and Robins. 
But this is the one where we follow Batman and Robin as they as they um, fight Mr. Freeze and Poison Ivy, who are trying to take over the world somehow, at the same time struggling with being partners. So there's so many layers to this film. It's a lot uh, happening. A lot. They also introduced um, Alicia Silverstone as Batgirl, um, who, you know, for the third part of the film is is Batgirl. So you had Batman and Robin and Batgirl and Mr. Freeze and Poison Ivy and Bane. Like this movie has so much going on. It's oh Didn't it have the Bat credit card? Oh my god, I think it did. Yeah. Oof. Cause this was George Clooney. Yep. Oh no. Never leave home without it. Never leave home. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. Like I'm only bringing it up because it happened in 97, but... oh. So what's funny is I've never seen it, um, at least not in its entirety. I'm sure I flipped past it on TV over time. You know, Spike TV is bound to put that stuff on here and there. My recollection of when this came out and what was going on was I remember being in Costco specifically, and there was Otter Pops they were selling that had Mr. Freeze. Like, that was the promotion, was Otter Pops branded with Mr. Freeze. That's actually very clever. I mean, yeah, it writes itself. Like, there you go. You just gotta just gotta put it on the box. But there's this um, there's this YouTuber that I follow, Retro Rick, and uh, he goes to flea markets and uh, you know, in, in secondhand stores, and uh, he's big on video games. But he, you know, some of it he flips and some of it he keeps for his own collection. But a lot of it is is video games. And one thing that he consistently picks up and sells, just to no end. So the first thing is that he sells them every time. But the second thing is that he finds them at every flea market and secondhand store and, and swap meet and places that he goes to. But it's the Batman forever. The little, the, the glasses that they made where they're like, you know, it's like a, a, a coffee cup, but it's, it's see-through and it's glass. And it's like the Riddler, Two-Face, Batman, Robin. Yeah. <laughs> um, He's like, he's like, I find these, at every location, he said. And, and he basically finds them and makes a pack of four and sells them as packs, as a, as a collection. And yeah, collects it, picks them up every single time he sees them, sells them every single time that he has a, a collection of four. But he said that was one of the things that, like, everywhere, finds them everywhere. Of all the merchandising they could have done, they pushed hard on the cups. Amazing. <laughs> All right, moving on to TV shows. Popular TV shows at the time, as we've mentioned, Seinfeld, ER, Veronica's Closet, Friends, and Monday Night Football. TV shows that ended in 1997. We talked about this in the 1992 episode, and it was on for five seasons. The X-Men animated TV show ends in 97 after five years. I've been watching that again. It's a great... Like, there are certain... There are certain storylines that they follow from the comic books that are awesome like like the savage land i love those episodes of the savage land um i think the first season introducing the characters the sentinels like going after mutants and stuff is fantastic it is so good iconic it is so good um so yeah it ended in 97 but you know for those of you who who are fans you probably know this but those of you who aren't it is set to be re-released. X-Men 97 is going to be called, is coming out in 2023. That's exciting. So it's basically going to continue from 97, um, you know, with, I guess, current storylines. So I, I might, and, and you know what, what I love about this, right? 
It's almost like if they asked me to write, you know, you grew up with it. You have certain things you loved about it. And then you're in the business of it. And then they're hiring you to be like, hey, about some, you know, well, what what X-Men storylines are you like? Oh, let me tell you what X-Men storylines are like. <laughs> and we're in a world where they can make them. I hope they capture, and I'm sure they will. I'm sure this is a big thing, is the animation. Because there is a distinct look to that 90s animation. That really comes through, like I, like I said, I, I started watching it from the beginning again. Making my way through it. And it's just like, there's something, it just feels different, right? Because everything wasn't digital. Yeah. You know? I agree. And it translates. It's the same thing with like those, it's as dumb as it sounds, like those action movies. When you watch an 80s action movie, they actually blow stuff up. They can make the explosions look as good now, but there's just something more tangible about it. Yeah. You know, and and, um, that's a perfect example because I remember Underground 6 came out a few months ago. A directed Netflix movie directed by Michael Bay starring um, a plethora of people, but uh, Ryan Reynolds. You watch that and Michael Bay is just notorious for CGI and, and explosions. And it's just so over the top that at a certain point, it's it's a Fast and Furious movie. You're like, I know none of this is real. Like it doesn't, there is no... No suspension. No, nothing. You know, like the last good explosion I remember watching was like the hospital being blown up in the dark night, you know, by the Joker. Where they blew up an actual building. And I get it. You can only do one take. <laughs> so you better have all your cameras going. But you're right. There is a definitely a difference in like hand-drawn reels, you know, where you can tell that, the, that there's a difference in it. It feels different. It looks different. And again, you know, same with the Batman animated series and its iterations. Like, you're right, actually. So that it would be good if they if they were able to maintain that. Not just the storyline, but the look that we all remember from that from that show. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so looking forward to that, to 2023. Here's an interesting show that ended in 97, which I forgot the show existed. But after reading about it, I was like, this show did exist. So at the height of Baywatch, they had a spinoff, Gabe. Baywatch Nights. And you would think it's the like... The only thing hotter than the day. Is the night. You would think that. You'd be like, whatever we can't show you in the day, we'll show you at night. You know, like, that's in my head. That's what I Right, that's what, what you'd assume. No, no. It's actually literally cases being handled at night. <laughs> <laughs> they just put the dark filter over the just, camera. That's, that's just it. But, <laughs> but basically, the series was about the the character. I think the, the character that was the boss of, of everybody in the Baywatch he goes through a midlife crisis and um, and decides to quit his job as a police officer to form a detective agency. And then you have appearances from the people from the daytime Baywatch in the nighttime one. And they, they help to solve cases, his uh, his little detective cases. Here's the great part. It was on for two seasons. Season uh-huh. one was not doing well so much that they had to recast and basically re-envisioned the story. And then in season two, they went into paranormal detective activities. <laughs> they were ghost hunting before, before they were. Discovery. Yeah, I, I completely forgot about Baywatch Nights. And again, it sounds a lot sexier than it was, apparently. Right, right, right. But um, that ended in, and I think, thank God, that ended in 97. <laughs> season three, who knows where they would have gone. I mean, they would have gone into they space. They were already scraping the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> Right into space. Time travel. Go. Oh, Baywatch time travel. Oof. 
remember though, every show around that time was doing time travel because I remember I used to love uh, the Next Generation, and they had their like 1930s episodes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Their excuse was different. They did Robin Hood. They did. Uh, they did tons of stuff. They did tons of stuff. Um, did you watch Picard? By the way, the the new one. I haven't. I've seen good things though, like in terms of what people had to say about it. The first season I really liked. Yeah. I started watching season two and I was like, oh, I see. They okay, so I will say this. They stuck to the original plot line of the show, right? But I don't like it. <laughs> ah. Because it's a it's a bit of a scapegoat. And I don't like it. Because the first one really did was telling a story and it was very nostalgic. This one, you're like, oh, okay. No, I don't like it. I don't like it. But, Interesting. But it's good, though. It's good. Like, it's Picard. It's good. Although you, you kind of are seeing Sir, Sir Patrick Stewart's age a little bit, which is kind of yeah. sad at the same time. But, you know, it's fine. TV shows that started in 97. This one I remember watching. A show called Just Shoot Me. Do you remember that one? Mm-mm. From 97 to 2003. Uh, 148 episodes. Seven years. It's about... The show was set... As the office of a fictional magazine that was kind of like uh, like Vogue, basically, and uh, and yeah, it was like uh, you know the hijinks that happened in a in a office scenario of a uh, of a fashion magazine. I, the the standout person from that show to me was David Spade. He played the photographer of the show because you remember like news radio was like the hijinks of an an office radio you know show. This exact same format. Okay, well, take the radio part out and just put a fashion magazine in and go. <laughs> you know, it was it was that scenario that 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 found. It's it's almost like like I always say like um, most TV shows now are like cop and blank and TV show. You know, like cop and the devil solve crimes. Lucifer, cop and a just, writer just run the random <laughs> generator. <laughs> We've had cop and dog, cop and monkey, so. I think it's one of those scenarios where, like, okay, we need office hijinks, but what's the office? We did yeah, a radio show. They work at a, you know, and and you know, you still see that now, so it's not like it's. Um, but yeah, that that was a show. I remember it being funny though. I remember it being funny, and again, David Spade was really good in it. I remember that. The other show that started in '97, um, which I also remember watching, was called The Practice. Does that ring a bell? I've heard that one. Yeah, ran for eight seasons. Created by David E. Kelly, who we talked about before. Uh, he married Michelle Pfeiffer, and he was also responsible for uh, Alec McBeal and a couple of other TV shows. This one was about, <laughs> not hijinks, but scenarios inside a Boston law firm. So it was a, a legal... Change the office. It was it was JAG, but on, on ground. <laughs> Just to connect with you and your and your uh, experience Gabe. imagine jack but without the uniforms and suits in boston not the boston harbor it's already less good <laughs> the uniforms is what did it you know <laughs> um but yeah it was on for eight years it won uh an emmy two two, two emmys i think two for two separate years for outstanding drama series it had a spin-off that ran for five years boston legal which Heard of that as well yeah so Boston, the practice though had uh, Dylan McDermott and Lara Flynn Boyle as their main actors throughout the throughout the series. Uh, again, I remember watching it. It was it was good, you know, it was good. The last show we'll talk about that started in '97 
This one I'm pretty sure you didn't see because it was an HBO show, but also it was very R-rated. Like, it was hard. It was Oz. Have you heard of Oz? I have definitely heard of it. Yeah. What makes What makes this show interesting is it ran for six seasons, but this was HBO's first produced TV show. You know, now we know HBO does a ton of TV shows, right? Game of Thrones and stuff like that. But this was their... This was They're their, well known for their very R-rated television they shows. They are very well known for their stuff. But this was the first uh, dramatic television series that was produced by HBO. It had Ernie Hudson, I remember, and J.K. Rollins. And then I remember throughout the six years, you had a ton of other supporting actors like Edie Falco was on there from Sopranos and from Nurse Jackie, Luis Guzman, Luke Perry was on for a season, Bobby Cannavale it was on. But yeah, it was basically... Uh, a fictional men's prison and what it, you know would you w- imagine the worst thing that could happen in a fictional men's prison and that's exactly what happened in it because HBO because HBO oh yeah no they full frontal full full back full full frontal full back full all like spread eagle full everything <laughs> everything happened in this show um Moving on to people who died in 1997. This one, I was not a fan of this individual just because his music was not for me. But I think you might have been just because of, of again, oh, you know, uh, the way you were, you were raised. John Denver passed away in 1997. American uh, singer, songwriter, actor, activist, and humanitarian. Were you familiar with uh, Mr. Denver's work? Familiar. That was not uh, a common. That was not something that got a lot of play from either of my parents, particularly. Why does that surprise me? Uh, so I don't know if he just didn't strike the right. Like my mom liked country a lot. Right, which he's like folky country, right? Yeah. So maybe it was not quite the right type. And then my dad was like very broad. Like he'd listen to whatever, but like a lot of classic rock and punk and. Mm. You know, though, like, I think he just didn't quite hit the right note. Interesting. That's a that's a very good pun. That's a good one. Oh, we're going to keep that one. We're going to make that the um, we're going to make the Instagram post of that one. Um, Yeah, he recorded and released approximately 300 songs, uh, about 200 of which he composed. He had 33 albums and singles. He was certified gold and platinum. I think he had like over 33 million units sold. Incredible. Incredible. He had an unusual death because he was a pilot and uh, he uh, he basically crashed his plane and died from the, the trauma from the uh, crash. He was uh, 53, so he could have put out at least 10 more albums, another 100 songs. Yeah, I do remember that being this quite is, uh, surprising for everyone when he when he died. He did. He did. This is the only song that I know that I know is John Denver, right? And I'm going to go right into the chorus because I think it's the one that everybody would recognize. Life is older, older than the trees, younger than the mountains, growing like a breeze. Country roads, take me home to the place. iconic chorus 
immortalized um, in, in in meme as well as in song. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Now, this next one, I don't know how much you'll know. If I say the name, you'll be like, "Oh yeah, I know who she is." But then, when I started doing the research, I'm like, "I actually don't know anything about her." Technically, I just know that everybody she's a she's a pop culture reference. Um, Mother Teresa died in 1997. So now we both nod our heads like, oh, yes, Mother Teresa. Yes, yes. But what did she do, Gabe? She founded an order of nuns. Good. Wow. You you know more than I do so far. She did a lot of work with the poor and also was a highly controversial figure uh, for her work um, because of its, I I think, largely because of the religious perspective. Um, I didn't I didn't catch the controversy until later because I was raised to revere what she did and who she was and all she had done is being quite good and that she was a very uh, I don't know um, she was was she she was she canonized yes she was she was she was yeah that happened a little later I think you know yes down I the think road, ten but, years uh, after she passed I think but I, I remember being cognizant of that process as it happened too so like it was very positive from the Catholic side and then later on i've i've been i've become aware of a lot more of the controversy surrounding and a lot of people saying that she's not um such an ideal example it you know again like i grew up not a religious person not by a bit by my mother's fault if she if she had had her way we would have been in church twice a week she did not <laughs> um but I, you know, the references to her were always in television and movies and stuff like that, you know. So when I was doing the research, yes, like there's definitely the founded the Missionaries of Charity, a Catholic order of nuns dedicated to helping the poor, began in India, and uh, it grew to help the poor, dying, orphans, lepers, and AIDS sufferers in more than 100 countries. She received the Nobel Peace Prize and Presidential Medal of Freedom. And yes, the controversy was definitely that she stuck by the rule and law of the Bible. So she she pitied no fools, as they say. Something interesting that I found out about her. So the the years before she passed, she had had quite a few ailments. And they actually, and it's interesting because when you think of an exorcism, you always think of like the devil. But apparently like they did an exorcism on her at her request, basically, because she felt that something was wrong because of the ailments that she kept getting and the and the misfortunes that she kept having thinking that you know she must there must be something that needs to be exercised from her so they actually did that like a year before she passed interesting stuff yeah it is interesting but yeah she died of cardiac arrest at the age of 87 which is a phenomenal age to die at i believe especially for for living what would have been a, a pretty rough life overall not a life of luxury yeah yeah yeah, I think part of the controversy was that too, that how she lived, like she just lived very, very like below modest. Um, yeah, that's interesting that you, the, the, I guess I should have figured that, but good thing I picked her because you knew much more about her than I did when I re- did the research. Or, well, we're look, I'm looking at time and I think we're going to cut this short, but I did want to play this song for you that was very popular in 1997 when it came out. Now, this song I actually like, I don't mind this song. It's unfortunate that they've become who they've become now in pop culture. Uh-oh. Because of... It's not... Okay, let me just play this song, and you tell me who it is. It ain't no joke I like to buy the world and teach the world to 
Change the world to snuff the fires and the liars They are now it's just a somebody's spot For the recipe, this is a love attack Do you know who this band is? I, I, I feel I, I, it's on the tip of my tongue and I just I can't I cannot place it. So that's Smash Mouth, right? Uh, I when that song came out, I thought that was a really good song. It was catchy right. song. I feel like in the last twenty years they've chosen a path, you know, where they did like Shrek, they did a bunch of covers. Right. They became a band almost like a Nickelback kind of like throwaway. You know, where people just use them as the butt of a joke or the punchline. They are, like comedy became a parody of them. Of, yes. Of, a band like yeah it's it's almost like you can't take them seriously yeah but i i'm actually a fan of that song from yeah. 1997 anyway they, that came out in 97 just to, is that uh, why you put it there because they, they 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 their their career died in 97 it started and it died in 97 <laughs> with that song a little bit a uh, little bit on toys from 97 so favorite halloween costumes included batman and robin tiger woods country pop musician garth brooks and the Spice Girls. All right, just a lot of people. Just put some clothes on. Put a mm. cowboy hat on. Yeah, I think these are very easy things to do, with the exception Possibly of Batman tie and Robin. A sweater around your shoulders. With the exception of Batman and Robin, I think these are very easy things to do. Yeah, phoned it in '97. Yeah, I know a little bit. Um, and then the, another toy was: Do you did you ever see bananas in pajamas? Or does that ring yes. a bell at all? Yes. I do know of them. Yeah. And I remember seeing clips of it. I, I have visuals I can conjure of seeing that. So Yeah, apparently the action figure set was very popular in 97. <laughs> I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> oh, I just had to share it, my friend. Had to that's, share it. That's very interesting, though. And then um, here's a couple um, a couple celebrity gossip stories. Uh, David Duchovny weds actress Thea Leone. Matthew Broderick. Wed Sex and the City actress Sarah Jessica Parker. James Hetfield. Wed Francesca Tomasi. And Jennifer Lopez wed Ojani Noah. Ojani Noah was. You're going to make it. Uh, <laughs> well, Gabe. Okay, I hope you haven't been watching the news, but she's not currently with him. She actually just got engaged to Ben Affleck. Not 2002 Ben Affleck, but 2019-20 Ben Affleck. Yeah, she had her choice between which which edition of Ben Affleck, and she went, nah, let's go with the new one. Yeah, she was actually only married to Mr. Uh, Noah from February 97 to January 98, just slightly under a year. Yikes. When they met, uh, he was a waiter. So I feel like backup dancers and waiters don't tend to be... Service with a smile. I mean... Get another great, great line from you, Gabe. Thank you. Quite, quite the tip. <laughs> oh, ladies and gentlemen, it's not going to get any better than this. Thank you for listening. <laughs> we'll see you next week. <laughs> uh, all right, so we're closing off 97. Like I said, I think we're going to do a little uh, mini episode with, with some of the movies that we Cutting didn't group, get yeah. to. There's, just, there's a lot. That, that year seems so far possibly the most jam-packed in terms of notable movies. Yeah, that's and that's the thing. Like I'm like there's there's great movies that came out. Not a lot of them, but the ones that came out are actually pretty damn good. Yeah. With the exception obviously of, you know, Batman and Robin and stuff like that. But you know, no one's counting on those. 
Um, but yeah, no, I, uh, it's been fun doing this. As I'm saying, there's like three more movies that I still want to discuss because they were really good um, and kind of get your take on them. Yeah. And um, and maybe we can like throw in something else in that episode just to make it a, a full one. But um, but yeah, uh, any uh, any um, other thoughts on ninety seven before we uh, we address uh, our goodbyes? Uh, no, it's just been it's been it's felt like it's just so full of things, notable things. And I mean, I mean, Titanic just Jesus. And yeah, and out of all of it, Titanic just swept the floor with everybody. Uh, there, there could have been so many movies that would be considered, like, look, and I, and I'll just end it with L.A. Confidential. It's it's L.A. Confidential to me is like the equivalent of like the Usual Suspects. It's just that good, but the Usual Suspects got the awards. <laughs> they were not overshadowed by another movie, because I tend to I tend to after Oscar season I tend to go through the movies that I haven't seen from the Oscars based on yep. the on the winners and the nominated films, right? I always try to watch all the Oscar nominated movies. The winners usually do get priority on the list, you know? So if you didn't win, I might not make it to you. And if there's a, other people like me, they might not make it to LA Confidential from 1998 uh, slash 97 Oscars, you know? Uh, and it's a shame because it's a really, really good movie. It really is. Uh, but yeah. No. Mean, meanwhile, they're watching Titanic going, huh? They did three tapes. My God. <laughs> you know what? Actually, I was watching I was watching uh, Retro Rick, and he seems to find Titanic VHSs. I think that was a double, Gabe. I don't think that was a triple. Was it? Okay. Because like, I, I, I have no personal experience. I, I was simply going off what I was told, and I was like, you know what? Like, I believe it with how long that thing was. You know what? Let's, let's, let's we're gonna, use it. We're going to use the power of the internet to solve this once and for all. And... And we're not going to put any hold music. This is live. Titanic VHS images. Ah, it's a double. Two tape. Okay. Two tape okay. set widescreen. Every, everything seems to point to two. Okay. All right. Thank you, Internet. You're very helpful. And thank you to all our listeners, to all our new listeners. We appreciate you. And we'll talk to you next week.